Uh, I invite you to turn in your Bible to the book of Daniel, chapter 3. We're taking two Sundays off of our study of the Gospel of Mark. Pastor Adam is uh, on some well-earned vacation uh, this week, so he's enjoying time with family. And this week, we're going to look at a familiar story in Daniel, chapter 3. Next week, Lord willing, Pastor John will be in the pulpit giving us a message related to Father's Day. So something for us to look forward to next week. Daniel chapter 3. But before that, let's pray together. Father, I pray that as we have our Bibles open on our laps, that you would speak through your word to our minds and our hearts. Lord, that beyond the familiarity of this story uh, or beyond my voice and what I'm going to say, that you would be the one who is at work, who is making us more like Jesus. Lord, we want to hear from you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's 1936, and everyone in Germany is obsessed with their nation's leader, Adolf Hitler. He's a strong, charismatic, ambitious figure. He's a symbol of strength after the wreckage of World War I, and he's giving the nation hope again. And everywhere he goes, he is greeted by big crowds of, you could say, worshipers. People giving homage, paying respect to this figure. Everywhere he goes, everyone looks at him and gives the sign of respect, the Heil Hitler sign. Everyone honors him but one. If you look in the picture, there is one person who is not giving the sign. His name is August Landmesser, an ordinary guy in his 30s with siblings and parents and a job. And he came to this gathering not to show his support, but to show his defiance by not going along with the crowd. August Landmesser ended up paying the ultimate price. He was killed a year or so later. Where does someone get the courage to do that? To stand up and be the only person that does what's right, even though everyone else goes the other way. How do you get there? And if this man could stand up for political reasons, how much more should we be willing to stand for Jesus Christ no matter what the cost or the price that we have to pay? Well, in our story in Daniel chapter 3, we're going to read about this. Uh, Daniel chapter 3 is a story of three friends who were commanded to bow down to a golden statue, but they refused to because of their loyalty to God. Let's read the story together. I want to start in verse 13, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. And when we start the story in verse 13, it's just after King Nebuchadnezzar received word that the friends are not going to bow down. We'll pick it up in verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. 
Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve, serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was so urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning, fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Faith in the furnace. That's what these three friends show us. Standing strong for God in the midst of pressure of hostility. Uh, there's three lessons we're going to learn 
from this passage, uh, three things that really come out of this story. First, we're going to see the pressure of our culture, then the power of our conviction, and then the presence of Christ. The pressure of our culture, the power of our conviction, and then lastly, the presence of Christ. First, the pressure of our culture. We didn't read it, but if you go with me to verse 1 of chapter 3, we'll see that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, built this entire statue, this huge statue, probably of himself. Read the dimensions of it, 90 feet tall by 9 feet wide, very tall and narrow statue. And he overlaid it in gold. And he invited the government leaders and the, the politicians and the high officials to come and to gather together in this festive celebration of dedication to the statue. And so everyone from every corner of the kingdom came together, and there's music playing, and there's lights, and just picture an opening ceremony of the Olympics. Everyone's gathered together, and when everyone is in the room, the dedication can begin. Verse 4, you'll see that the decree goes out that everyone at the sound of the music must fall down and worship the golden statue to show loyalty to the kingdom and to the gods that are represented. And then the consequence, of course, verse 6, those who do not worship the golden image will be cast into the fiery furnace. Now, this is not the first time that King Nebuchadnezzar has threatened with death. It was one of his favorite tools to use in getting people to do what he wanted them to do. But this one's different. This time, when the king threatens with death, he can point to a blazing, fiery furnace just beyond the golden statue. The, the sound of the, the wood and the fire crackling is probably audible to everyone there. And then, on the spot, when the music plays, what are you going to do? And the friends do not bow to the idol. Verse 7, the music plays. And as far as the eye can see, backs go down. Knees are bent. Just this sea of worshipers of the golden statue. Except for three men who stand out, of course. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do not bow. Even though they're living far away from Israel... They have not forgotten the God of Israel who said, do not make a graven image or bow down to it in the Ten Commandments. And so even though everyone else is doing it, they refuse to bow. And so we read word of, the, of these three friends gets to King Nebuchadnezzar. He is furious. You read twice in this passage that he is filled with rage and fury. Verse 13 and verse 19. And he says then in verse 14, Is it true that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image? Now, it's important to notice what King Nebuchadnezzar is demanding the friends to do. Nebuchadnezzar is not saying to the friends, You need to worship the golden statue instead of your God. He doesn't care. He's saying, You must worship the golden statue in addition to your God. All these people, like I said, came from all the corners of the known world in the kingdom of Babylon. They have their own gods. They have their household deities. They have the people they worship and pray to. And Nebuchadnezzar couldn't care less. 
What he cares about is not what you do in private, but in public. Worship the image. Show your loyalty to me above anything else. And we see here a very obvious connection, right, between the culture in Babylon and our culture nowadays. You can worship your gods in private. You can have your faith and your religion. If that works for you, if that's a help for your, for your mental state, you can trust, you can pray whatever you want to in private. But when you come in public, in our culture, in our world, you better bow to the idols that we have. You better check your idols at the door and worship our gods. Let me give you one example. I have a friend that works for a graphic design company, uh, and just this week, uh, she was asked to create a poster for a retirement community celebrating Pride Month. So here are the pictures, and here's the text, and make something that will celebrate this month. What are you going to do? You can have your opinions in private about gender, about marriage, about God. That's all fine. As long as in the public square, in our world, you leave those and worship gods in addition. You bow the knee to our God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, back to our story, know that that, that is not how true worship works. You cannot worship God plus something else. Addition of other gods means subtraction of worship that belongs to the one true God. God demands exclusivity. Just imagine a a husband saying to his wife, uh, I love you very, very much. Let's add some more wives. The more the merrier. Why not? That's not how that works. The husband pledges to forsake all others. Same in our relationship with God. When we commit ourselves to God, we are committing ourselves to him alone. Nebuchadnezzar, again, doesn't care about any of that. He wants people bowing to him. So he gives them one more chance. You could say he's gracious, or he just thinks to himself, there's no way. Let me just put a little more pressure on them. Then they'll bow. It's embarrassing for him to have three people who refuse to bow. He gives them one more chance. He lays out the consequences, the fiery furnace. He says in verse 15, And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So here we go. Let's cue the music, get everything going, and a one and a two. Nothing. They still don't bow. They still don't bend the knee. Think for a minute of all the pressure that Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were under. Everybody's doing it. Fellow Israelites who came to Babylon are bowing as well. The most mighty man on planet Earth is standing in front of them. Behind him is a furnace that is so hot the, 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 the warmth is probably glowing off of their faces at this moment. Still, they refuse to bow the knee. Why? How do they do that? Because of their conviction, the power of their conviction. 
trying to think this week of all the, the different rationales that the friends could have given for bowing to the idol. Right? They could have said, God will forgive us. He knows the pressure we're under. Let's just do it. I'll just ask for forgiveness later. Or they could have said, we're, we're employees of the state. We have to do, so I'm kind of uncomfortable with it, but I have to, I have to bend the knee. And think of all the opportunities that we're going to have. All, the, all the, the strategic missions opportunities. If I stay in that position, and okay, yes, I kind of have to close a blind eye to these things, but if I'm here, I can maybe influence people and make a difference. But they don't do that. Or maybe they could have said to each other, um, let's just bow and go through the motions. We know that we're not bowing to Nebuchadnezzar. Let's pray while we're bowing. That way we'll keep our conscience clean. They do none of that. Not at all. They respond at once. Verse 16, we have no need to answer you in this matter. They don't ask for time to consult their lawyers. They don't phone a friend. They basically say, you can play music all day. We're not going to bow to the idol. They show amazing conviction. They're not rude to the king. They're not aggressive. They're not militant. They have just firmly, simply decided in their hearts, our loyalty is to God. Whatever happens, if everyone does it or no one does it, if it's easy or difficult, if it makes me feel like I'm standing out or I'm fitting in with the crowd, I will worship God first, last, always. We would rather die than bow, is what they're saying. You know, the, the, the difficult thing is for us who know the story, we know how it's going to end. We know that there's going to be a deliverance. There's going to be a miracle in a couple of verses that they'll be taken out of the fire. But even if the story ended here, this story would be a miracle. The commitment, the dedication, the loyalty to God above all others. One commentator puts it this way, that there are three men who do not worship in Nebuchadnezzar's totalitarian state is a miracle of God. That the three were not devoured by the fire is no greater miracle. Suppose the fiery furnace had consumed them. The real miracle would have happened the same. Faithfulness to God. Uh, there will be times, friends, for all of us in our lives, either now or in the future, that we will have to make a decision stand or bow. The consequences may be as drastic as this, probably not. The consequences might involve um, a loss of a job or um, being treated unkindly by family members or friends or, or you name it. What will keep us standing and not giving in? Conviction. Conviction in what God is, who he is, and what our loyalty to him should look like. These friends are amazing. They're probably in their 20s, just in the, the firmness of their conviction. Verse 17, they show amazing confidence in God's power. They say, our God, whom we serve, is able 
to deliver us from the fiery furnace. He could take us out of there. No problem. And we'd be fine. They're confident that he can, he can save them, but they're also submitting to his will. Verse 18. This is, this is the most important three verses in this chapter. If you would underline, if you're an underliner, or circle, whatever, the first three verses in verse eight, first three words in verse 18. But if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods or worship the image that you have set up. God can save us, but if God does not save us, he is still worthy of our worship. The friends had no promise that God would take them out of the fire. No assurance that they would not be in the furnace. And neither do we. We don't have a promise from God that we will be spared trials. That difficulties will just pass us by. God did not save Jim Elliot from the Aka Indians when he went to spread the gospel, but was martyred for his faith. God did not heal Johnny Erickson Tata when she dove in the shallow water and remained paralyzed from the neck down for the remainder of her life. And in the furnaces of our lives, God does not promise us deliverance. There are many furnaces, if you will, represented in this room. Um, Think of financial issues. The furnace of wayward children. Unreconciled relationships. Chronic sickness. The Bible tells us to to pray for God to to heal us or to take us out of a difficult situation. And praise God, he does many times more than we deserve. But he doesn't promise us deliverance on this side of heaven. He gives us another promise, a better promise. He gives us the promise of his presence. In the story, starting in verse 24, Nebuchadnezzar is furious. Or sorry, back it up a little bit. Verse 20, he orders the three friends to be cast into this this flaming furnace that has been heated seven times hotter than usual, somewhere around the two to 3,000 degrees Fahrenheit at this point. It's so hot that it, it scorches some of his most mighty men. He's just, Nebuchadnezzar is... In, is in a rage monster mode right now. He's not rational. So he throws them, he orders them to be thrown into the furnace, and then Nebuchadnezzar goes to a place where he can see the furnace. Not so close, obviously, but a little farther away. And what he sees is two shocking things. First, he sees the three friends walking around. They're alive. They're moving around. And then he sees a fourth person, verse 25. I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. He sees Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and someone else. 
And he identifies him. He thinks he is a, a son of the gods. Looks like an angel. And commentators agree that this is in all likelihood not just an angel sent by God, probably the angel of the Lord. And in the Old Testament, when the angel of the Lord is mentioned, it speaks to God coming in visible form, invisible manifestation to his people. Think of Abraham or Joshua. And so this is a, a pre-incarnate manifestation of Jesus himself with the friends in the furnace. Guiding them, taking them out of this furnace. Because verse 27, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, everyone gathers around after they're called out and they notice when the three friends emerge from the furnace that the fire had not had any power over them. They have hair on their heads, their clothes are fine. And this is my favorite one. No smell of fire had come upon them. You know how difficult it is to even be close to a campfire at night and not smell like a campfire the next day? There was not even a hint of fire in these three friends. Jesus came to them in their furnace and rescued them. So what do, we, what, do we, what do we learn from this? It's a familiar story. We've heard it many times, I'm sure. What are we supposed to take from this for our own lives? Well, I mentioned already um, the fact that we have trials and furnaces in our lives. Right? In the Bible, fire and, and furnaces in particular are a symbol for suffering, for going through hard times. And like we said already, God does not always take us out of those furnaces, doesn't take us out of those trials, but he is right there with us. The promise is not deliverance. The promise is presence. Right there. In the furnace. There's a beautiful verse in Isaiah 43 where God says this as well. Fear not, he says, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. God wants us to know this morning, he wants you to know this morning, that in your furnace, he is with you. Years ago, when my granddad in the Netherlands had a heart attack, the uh, ambulance came, and he was rushed to the hospital. And my dad and my grandmother followed in a car. And they got to the hospital and walked up to the intensive care unit. And uh, as they walked up to the ICU, through the doors, um, to his room, my grandmother reached for my dad's hand as if to say, this is hard. I need to know you're with me. I need to feel someone with me. When life feels most difficult, most scary, you are 
not alone. You have someone, you have Jesus walking right beside you. You say, well, how do I know? How do I know that's true? If it was true for the friends, what's the confidence that I can have? Well, we can look at this passage through the lens of the gospel. And we think about the the suffering that Jesus went through, the, the furnace that Jesus endured, not because he deserved it, because he took our sin upon himself. He bore the flames of the wrath of God on the cross. And when he was at the most difficult point in his life, when the the flames, if you will, were the hottest, where was God? Jesus was alone. He cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He did that. So that anyone who puts their faith and trust in him, who looks to him in faith, can, can know that in our furnaces, we never have to say that. Because he took that. So in any furnace that you experience, we can know, have the assurance that Jesus is there. Because he took the ultimate furnace for us. Whatever in our lives is distressing, discouraging, perplexing, Jesus doesn't take us out of it, but is right there with us. I want to wrap up today by giving you two examples of what that looks like to walk through a furnace, through a trial, knowing that Jesus is right there with us. Because I'm I'm aware uh, that something like this can be a truth that we all agree on, that Jesus is with us. But what does it mean to to drill it down into our lives? Um, I just want to give you two examples examples. Uh, and the first one is, and I asked for her permission to share, is um, Nancy Ruskowski. As many of you know, she has um, a surgery coming up to manage the symptoms of her Parkinson's. And um, it's been a long, unknown journey. And God has not healed her of her Parkinson's. We still pray that he, that he does. But God has been with her every step. Uh, he has given her evidences of his grace uh, in people, uh, friends from our church family. He's given her opportunities to share her faith with doctors. Uh, I was talking to her this week, and she was telling me about that, that God has been just with her. And then at the end, she said this, Caleb, praise God for Parkinson's. I want to be able to say that. I want to have faith like that. When it's most difficult, when the furnace is turned up, to know that God is with us. Let me give you one more example. This one is on a much smaller scale. because I just want to show that we don't always have to go through a tragedy to make this real in our lives. Um, Two weeks ago, I went to the Netherlands and um, great time to see family again. And when I come back, I always struggle for about a week or two, just saying goodbye to friends and family, um, being content, 
and if they live so far away, think about a grandparent, um, and it feels like not a big deal, but it's real. And uh, yeah, I would say the past two weeks, feelings like that. And um, God does not make those feelings go away. But he shows me, and the last two weeks, every time I open my Bible to read, some verse came not here, but here. And I'm sure you've experienced that in your life as well. That when um, the, the fire gets turned up a little bit, when it feels hot, when we run to the Lord because we actually need him, he is with us and he gives us evidences of his grace. So what I want to say to the brother or sister in the furnace Keep going. Stay strong. You are not alone. God gives us his presence. He helps us to stand for him in our furnaces when no one else is. He's with us always. We're going to sing a song talking about how one day all those things will be over, but until that day, he empowers us in the furnace to live 